Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the First Word Podcast. Uh, my name is Alex, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike. And we are ready to dive into a discussion today um, to start wrapping up the end of the year. I can't believe 2018 is almost over. Um, there's a lot I wish we could discuss, and we will hopefully uh, our next episode will be a discussion about our favorite films of the year. Um, but for now, we wanted to talk about one more film that's been on our minds and that has just come out this year, Vox Lux. But before we get into that discussion, um, uh, we just want to talk about some of the recent trailers that have come out because as the year comes to an end, the movie studios start dropping some big trailers for the coming year. And this year there's been um, a couple of big ones we've all been waiting for and a couple of things we've been sort of uh, waiting to get a look at based on early buzz and, and um, excitement about them. And so uh, first off, I just want to clarify um, – Mike is here with me, and we're both very busy with our own schedules in life, and it's uh, remarkably hard to actually get time to sit down and record and um, be on the same schedules, especially since we live on different sides of the world. But um, it's been a challenge, and we're very happy to be able to have this moment to have a discussion, and, and thank you for listening, everyone. Um, so yeah, are you ready, Mike, to get into this? Yeah. I mean, well put. I think this is the might be our last recording of 2018 which is the first year that we've started this podcast together and i think there's a lot more to come and it's been great to kind of get it started get our sea legs about us so to speak yeah and i know there's no real consistency in timing which is just a matter of the year you know sometimes honestly if we could we would record an episode every week probably about some new film that has come out but not only is it hard to see the films but it's hard to get time to do it and I'm just happy that we can have discussions and chats about all kinds of interesting topics with a lot of really, really great, intelligent, and very uh, unique guests with different perspectives. And that gives us an angle that um, we get outside of our own conversations. And I, I'm I'm always excited that we can just have these kind of conversations because as, also as someone who writes online all day long, it's actually really great to come on and like speak and have a conversation that isn't written and uh, and I really love doing that with you, Mike, and uh, with all of our guests. So anyway, let's get right into it. Um, our first discussion will just be about a couple of trailers that come out. The first one we want to talk about uh, is Avengers, and now known as Avengers Endgame, which I basically called like the day after I got out of the film last year because it's a line in the film, and I expected it, and it, you know it's one of those makes exact sense. Um, and uh, of course, this teaser trailer was also big because. It was, um, and I say was past context because at the time before it was released, we had no idea what the title would be, and so this well, trailer did, was though. the. Well, no, but I'm saying this this trailer was the title reveal. Actually, one of my good friends um, uh, had told me that it was supposed to be Avengers Annihilation, and he had heard that like on good authority, but he had also heard that, you know, I, I don't know how much of this is true. Take it with a grain of salt, but he had heard that um, uh, the Russo brothers, the directors, were were holding everything. I get what's the term close to the their vest, where basically they were very controlling and specific, and that they let you know again. I don't know if this is true or not, but that they apparently were at the last minute deciding whether or not or what to call it or not. I don't really believe that because you need to have a film titled, and Endgame is not this like massively special title as much as it's kind of what a lot of us expected. Um, but it, but the trailer ends with that like title card reveal of like Avengers Endgame, which is interesting because. Obviously, that's not what everyone was looking for. Everyone was looking for, A, how, are they going to tease anything after the, the cliffhanger end of Avengers Infinity War? Which they didn't. They, they they obviously admit and pick up where it's left off, but they don't 
really give us any indication of what's happening. And then also, uh, aside from that, is the, is the question of, of course, what what will this be about if half the people have disappeared? You know, will they be back? Will they be back with an explanation at the beginning? Will they be back with something? And this trailer, um, I will admit, it's very beautifully a, a, a teaser with nothing to it, but that with a good amount of tease. Like there's these moments, these emotional moments that are like there and you feel them, especially knowing the Avengers and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the whole series and, and leading up to this. But it doesn't really show anything. And I would love it. And, and I said this on Twitter. I would love it if this was just it. If they were just like, this is your tease and we're not going to show you anything else before May or before April when it opens. And honestly, they would make money. I, I don't even think that's an argument or a discussion. It's like they would they would do just as much money. And they could release a trailer the, the week it opens, maybe, once everyone has seen it. But this is enough. So anyway, that's my thoughts on it, Mike. What do you – It's not giving us that much to work off of, and I like that. But if you go online, if you go online uh, it, may as well, it may as well just be entirely full of Easter eggs that are um, vital to understanding everything that's going to happen. It's amazing how much people ha- can take out of a teaser like this and extrapolate into conspiracy theories and whatever. My favorite part is the fact that, and I just counted it <laughs> to um, shame myself, but the the title card is on screen for 17 seconds. Yeah, well, I told you that was the whole point of this trailer. I don't even think they literally call it a teaser. I think they call it like a title reveal. To, to, like, cover up for the fact that it's not really a teaser. It's, like, purely a title reveal. Dude, 17 seconds. Could you could you imagine just, I mean, all if they had just put out a 20-second video that was just the title forming. They could have done that, though. They could have done that. <laughs> that would have pissed off That would have pissed off fans. Of course. They, and maybe, of course. They, maybe I'm they actually, know that, but they could have done it. I'm, I'm grateful, though, that they gave us what they gave us because typically – with a movie like this, the teaser is just a rehash. It's like the last time on, uh, you know, thing you see on a TV show. So to get new footage and to have it give you a sense of where everybody is, I think that's really helpful. And it gives you a little bit to think about. Okay, so, you know, Tony Stark's floating out in space with uh, What's-Her-Face. And um, so I'm assuming that that's how Captain Marvel will enter this, you know, cinematic universe uh in present day so that she'll like rescue him from the outer space and bring him to earth so that everybody can work together again i mean it gives you a little to think about i might might be completely wrong but it's kind of nice to just have little bits and pieces to try and put together in your head but i'm I'm, i am it actually drew me back to something that i've sort of lost interest in especially when infinity war does it which is Pepper Potts and Tony Stark's relationship. I mean, it should be the core emotional draw for everything. It should be what brings us home and what we care about most. But I think they've done a pretty shitty job over the years of making that relationship matter to me and probably to anybody. It's not, it just doesn't have as much weight because they have a banter and they just sort of, you know, like they float along each other in all these movies. I would love to see the emotion from this movie come from that pepper pots, Tony Stark thing. And it looks like they're, they're implying that it will. So I, I'd love to see that happen. I mean, I'm all here for the action and the big plots and the, 
big uh, reveals and how are they going to put it all back together and who's going to be left over at the end. But I'm really curious where they go with the Pepper Potts, Tony Stark thing. And I think that's what I took out of the trailer most. Besides um, Hawkeye, which we got to just, you know, tip a cap to how badass he looks in this t- in this teaser. Yeah, you you I, I sent this to you from Twitter, but there was a, an artist who made an illustration of uh, Pepper Potts alive back in Tony's armory, like looking at a hologram of Tony that he left on the helmet in, in a like tease for this film. Um, you know, I don't know, but it, it, it's like that. that's obviously what a lot of people are thinking is what you're saying there. Um, and the other thing is that this trailer did the other final reveal that this trailer did do is that Ant-Man is there, which is the other thing that everyone saw from the movie, from uh, Infinity War, was that, oh, well, Ant-Man's going to be in the quantum realm, and he's going to be able to survive, and he's going to come back and help. And his reveal is as funny as his movies, which is fine, but it's also, like, a, a obvious reveal. It's like all the three things we expected, like Hawkeye, of course, Ant-Man, and Captain Marvel, who got her own trailer anyway. And, and you know, so it's all there, and it's like... Now what's next? And I and I like the subtlety of this teaser. And of course there will be more. There there's not they're not gonna not put out another trailer as much as I wish that. So um, I think this is a great opportunity for us to see uh, how a big studio markets a movie that really needs to hide behind an iron curtain. And you know we say that about movies before like Star Wars and other things like that. But this is really one of the rare moments where a big time blockbuster that is planning to make a billion dollars has to market without giving away any story even though you know 75 percent of the box office is coming from people who just want to not think and don't care um but that other 25 percent cares deeply and i think they have a great respect for the audience that does care and they don't want to ruin the surprises and they don't want to kind of give away the plot details i i'm i'm appreciative of that not everybody can make movies that have you know, deep thought provoking twists and this probably won't, but people approach it like it does and they understand that and they're going to market it appropriately. And there's going to be one or two moments, you know, mark my words and in the spring that causes an uproar. Oh my God. I can't believe they showed that in this six milliseconds portion of the Super Bowl teaser that they just aired, you know, but they're not going to show much. So, yeah, it's fun. But moving on. Yeah, the next one we want to talk about, because it also came out this week, is uh, Hellboy, the new Hellboy trailer, um, which I'm uh, I'm a huge fan of, of Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy. Uh, the first film, I actually didn't like the second film at all, surprisingly, even though a lot of critics love it. Um, so this one's been a, a, a sensitive subject to me because I'm I'm such a fan of the, of the Ron Perlman Hellboy. And, um, of course, we've all been waiting for this one. They've been teasing it very well with posters and, and first looks. Um, and I like David Harbour, who plays the Hellboy in this one. Um, and I've, of course, been like, you know, I don't know. This is an unnecessary. Uh, so the trailer came out, and it's a full trailer. It's like a two-minute trailer. And um, it's very funny and light and – or not light, but uh, lighthearted, <laughs> so to say. And it's uh, very amusing and, and goofy and – they're trying to play that tone of Hellboy more, which was in Guillermo del Toro's, but much more um, uh, uh, nuanced and much more dark humor. Um, and so I, I enjoy the humor, but it is feeling a bit weird and it does look a bit cheap. But I don't hate it as much as it seems a lot of people on Twitter hate it. 
And I enjoyed what we've seen, and I'm gonna go see it. And I hope the final, sh- the, the, the sorry, the final film was good. Um, I'm not making a huge judgment call off of this trailer, um, but I enjoyed it. I also wouldn't say it's anywhere near the Pearlman one. I actually, the first time I watched the trailer, I thought, man, he looks exactly like and sounds exactly like and acts exactly like Ron Perlman's Hellboy. So why did why are we doing something different? But then the second time watching, I'm like, yeah, he's actually not as good. And he's different in a way that I don't like because I thought I thought Perlman's performance as Hellboy was so perfect, was so like you can never top it, no matter whoever takes on this character. That that's that's actually how I feel now watching this trailer. It's like it's true, and I hope Harbor does a good job and a serviceable job. But I don't think it's going to be um, anything that like you know I, I highly doubt when it comes out next year. No critic is going to be like, oh, it's as good as Guillermo del Toro's. I'm sure they're going to be like, it has its own strengths and weaknesses, but it's it's more amusing fun i also feel like they're setting it up almost like they were considering a, a spin-off tv series based on the um the bprd which is the bureau for paranormal research and defense which is the one that uh hellboy works for and they were going to do like a tv series where it's like the the four people who work there go off and you know fight paranormal creatures every week and this feels a lot like that like they're not trying to do anything big and world saving they're kind of just like reintroducing hellboy and taking us on these like little uh, solving crime things around London with something bigger, which is the sorceress is the problem this time. So I don't know. What is your take, Mike? I appreciate Hellboy, but I never got into it like some people mm-hmm. I know did. And I'm not clamoring for more of it. I know that it has a huge rabid fan base, and I and I love that about it. Um, I'll give it a shot because I know people love it. Um, so I don't hold too much of a candle to it. And I'll see it, but I probably won't be able to drag my wife to this in theaters, so I'll have to find a way to go on my own. Um, all that being said, the blind spotting movie uh, came to mind because I was thinking about the metaphor in the film about uh, you know what you what you see, what you know you're looking at, and once you see something else, it's impossible to go back. Oh. Nice, nice, nice uh, side pitch for blind spotting. Great, <laughs> yeah. Film. Which, oh my god, so good. Uh, I wish we podcasted when it was out. I watched this trailer, and at first, I just could not unsee Ron Perlman. And then by the end of yeah, it, I, yeah. I like couldn't, I couldn't picture Ron Perlman Hellboy anymore. So, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's a really good sign, and and I'm excited. I'm excited for it, and and I think that it has a lot of potential. But I also think that unfortunately, this is just one of those characters and franchises that can own that has a ceiling that can only go so far and and that's okay i just you know i'm gonna have a hard time being as amped up for it as other things and it will either be surprisingly amazing for me or expectingly good i I don't i'm sure it's not gonna be bad that's my take that's how the trailer made me feel um Maybe it could be bad. I just I, I just seemed like, yep, this will either be good or it will be surprisingly great, and then I'll move on. Sorry if anybody listening is super big on Hellboy, but that's just that's my take. That's how I feel about no, it. No, no, that that makes sense, and it, it, it's it's. I think that's what's interesting about this trailer is I don't know anyone who's like hype. Like I wish I wish I even knew a, a fan who was like a comic book fan of the comics and was like, oh, hey, I enjoyed Garamos, but I'm really looking forward to a different take and excited for this. But I don't know. I've never even heard that from anyone online. So I don't really know who they made this for. And while I do think the comics are awesome, 
and I haven't read a lot of them, but the ones I have are great. Um, it's very, it's also like, it's also kind of like how they how they made the new Spider-Man after so soon after uh, the the um, like development failure of I think it was in between the uh, uh, Peter Parker, um, Tobey Maguire ones, and then the um, what's his name uh, uh, newer ones. Yeah, Andrew Garfield ones. I think it was in between that. It was like so soon, and everyone was like still with the bad taste of the last Spider-Man in their mouth. And this one's the same thing. Like, people are still not over the fact that they wouldn't let Guillermo finish his trilogy. And that's going to be the, the, the common discussion thread for this. And I don't know if, like, waiting three more years would have solved that, because, of course, he never did finish his trilogy. But nonetheless, like, that was so soon that they're not going to be able to get over that no matter what they do. And I think that's on everyone's mind, including the fans of the comic and the fans of the movies, and and people who aren't fans, they're like, hey, well, even though I might have enjoyed the Guillermo ones, I still would have seen that. So it's, it's a hurdle that I don't think they'll ever be able to leap. But uh, it, I also don't think it looks as bad as it could have been, um, which is a weird thing to say. But I, I was, like, super concerned that it was going to be awful, you know. But it doesn't look that – I know there's someone out there listening to this right now like, no, Alex, you're wrong. It does look terrible. It's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> All right, what was the third trailer we wanted to talk about? Um, it's your it's your trailer, Mike. Men in Black International, which is I and I've been tweeting this. This is the stupidest title, one of the stupidest titles of the decade, and I'm not surprised it's Sony because Sony has been making a a lot of like I'm I'm not even gonna try and talk nicely. A lot of really idiotic, dumb title choices this year, between like adding the stupid uh girl with the dragon tattoo story thing to the title and. And it's just clear idiocy in their marketing. And, like, this one's the same thing. Like, I, I know that someone out there probably has some, like, eloquent defense. Like, well, it really means that they would – but it's just, it's just, like, a confusing title. And really, it would not have hurt them to do Men in Black anything else. Like, if, if they're so concerned – the titling issue nowadays with movies seems to be that if you have something that was a previous franchise or series, you have to include that in the new title. You can't pretend – that it wasn't like um, uh, the other title issue that Sony had this year was um, the sequel to um, uh, what is it? the title was Day of Sodaldo. I can't think of a yeah, Sicario. Yeah. So Sicario. So like they it went through three iterations. It went through like Sicario 2 and then it went through Day of Soldado by itself. And then it became like Sicario Day of Soldado. And then it became Day of Sicario Day of Soldado Sicario. Like all these things where they 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 desperately realized they had to put Sicario in it, and they couldn't call it that. I don't think but this what, is a matter of realization. I think it's just it's just nerves. I mean, you, you yeah, but you I'm saying okay, the they marketing. had to do Men in Black, and then they had to do. They're like Men in Black, what? And it's just like you couldn't think of anything else. But there's there's there's, I'm not making an excuse for it. I don't like this title either. I was confused when I saw international. I just assumed it was an international trailer, but yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it's worth being said that the 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 Harry Potter movies uh, that are coming out now, right? The um, the what's Fantastic it called? Beast. Fan, Fantastic Beasts. <laughs> that that doesn't say Harry Potter anywhere. It, you know, they sneak in the Wizarding World in the title card um, yeah, during the movie, but that's, but a that's not thing, yeah. right. It's not part of the trailer. I mean, the the title. So. There are probably five franchises in history that could stand to change the title entirely or get rid of the brand name in the title. You know, Christopher Nolan going with The Dark Knight was like a hysterical move at that time, if you remember. Oh my god, it doesn't say Batman in the title. How are people going to know? Um, You know, when the franchise is recognizable and the brand is there... People can see the first frame they know what they're looking at or the first note of music they know what they're seeing. 
Men in Black is not that. I mean, Men in Black is iconic in certain ways, but not really as a franchise. And so I, I appreciate the sense that, okay, well, it's been so many years. What are we going to do now? Let's find a tent pole. Oh, we haven't touched this franchise in a while, and it's kind of stale, so we can either make a fourth one or we can just reboot it. And nowadays, though, I'm, I'm glad what they're doing with reboots is not just taking it and starting over, but they're, they're continuing, right? They're, they're ignoring the past narratively uh, by creating new characters, but they're, they're acknowledging that it exists. So like in the trailer for Men in Black, they have those, they have those two paintings, and one of them is yeah, Will yeah. Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. So, you know, it's nice to know that it's some, in some way – that Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones trilogy will be in, involved or at least within the same world. And, you know, of course, I, I, you know, maybe I'm just making assumptions I shouldn't make. But right now, my assumption is that because it's been 20 years that she's been looking for the men in black people, that um, Tessa Thompson is somehow related to Will Smith or that there's that's how they're going to connect the dots. You know, maybe she's his uh. daughter or whatever. That yes, uh, so that I wouldn't love. I'm already that. grumbling. At well, this, I know, yeah. like it would be, but I would roll my eyes and I'd move on. Like it's okay, it's fine for me. I don't care. It's not making me excited to see the movie unless Will Smith's going to show up, which would make me excited because I love that character. But what I liked about the trailer was the same thing I liked about the 21 Jump Street movies. The same thing I liked about well, I can't think of other ones right now, but there's definitely been a few where they take old titles and they're just sort of revamping them i like that the energy is different it's just it's it's fun and energetic and action-packed and it's not offering anything new it's not you know it's not providing us with any sort of social commentary and some of the reasons why these movies were so great back then is because they we didn't realize then but they were actually like providing more than just popcorn action flicks i there's something about this tessa thompson chris hemsworth like they know they they made this movie and they know what the people are going to be thinking. Oh, they were in Thor together. Okay, let's throw a little Thor gag in there with the hammer on the ground at the end as the bumper for the trailer. Like if they can be if they can show me that they're willing to step out of the big-headedness of this franchise is is so important we can't mess with it, then I get annoyed. But when they say this franchise is is beloved by many, not even known to some Let's just have fun with it, cast some fun people, throw some jokes in there, get some cool gadgets. Like, I'm there. I'll be there. And I'll watch the movie. I'll that's, spend that's, 14 bucks, ex- and then I'll move on with my life. But that's exploiting your, your nostalgia for their gain, and it's actually not very good for society, especially good for cinema, to do that. But like I if there's no a nostalgia genuine... for Men in Black. Like, I'm not going because yes, I do. love— you do. Of course you do. Well, let me rephrase. <laughs> I'm not going because of my nostalgia. Like, I don't— have but it's an existing franchise they're playing on that in some way you just told me you have an interest it's brand in record well brand recognition that creates trust yeah, nostalgia. I, know, I don't see those as the same thing i i mean to me like nostalgia is the is showing the little critters that were in the original and made me smile right in the trailer yeah, they did that <laughs> in the trailer well i'm saying that, that they did that there's a moment in the trailer where i was like nostalgia boom um but for the most part what made me happy was Okay, brand recognition. I know what to expect, but I like these actors a ton, so now I'm set. I'm good with what they're doing because they cast really good, lovable people in a franchise that I know. 
so I don't have to worry about anything. I can. I know I'm going to get crazy weird aliens, crazy big alien weaponry, and a bunch of jokes. Okay, cool. Let's do it. Now, if they try harder than that, I'm going to probably have problems with the movie. I, Mike, don't take this the wrong way. No offense. But I think this is a very simplistic approach to enjoying a movie. You're like, get, you're yeah. saying this is the formula to feed me and feed me. And while I know you're not one of these people who complains that there's not enough original movies and then continues to go to the worst movies of the year because you see a lot of other stuff. But that's the that's the qualm with these people who make that claim is they're like, oh, there's not enough original stuff. And then they go see the same crap that's spoon-fed to them over and over. That's what I don't like about this. I hate that they've... And not even just Man in Black, but a lot of Hollywood just come to this manipulation of your your formula and and figuring out what to feed you so that you feel happy, even though it's completely substanceless, nutritionless nonsense that we don't need. And of course, I'm not saying that hey, they can't make a good Men in Black movie, but I didn't even like the the two sequels they did make. The second <laughs> this, one this was is okay. Why I go to so. Chipotle twice a week? Yeah, but that's okay. Chipotle is different because it's actual nutrition, whereas not, cinema I mean, it's, is different. It's in, 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 it's partially nutritious. For the most part, it's <laughs> probably very not. Healthy, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's come to a point, and, and we can close. This is maybe a good closing point anyway, because trailers themselves are just a commercial like any TV commercial for food. Uh, uh. I would say when it comes to movie trailers, most people have already made up their mind. Right? It's, it's rare. No, they make up their mind with the trailer. I think the trailer either confirms people's expectations of whether they're going to like a movie or not, or it introduces them to something they didn't even know exists. But, but I think people are pretty much predetermined on whether they're going to like something based on the genre and the actors, and that's pretty much it. Like, I don't, I don't agree, the, but I'll let you go. I don't, see the gun, I don't see the guns in the car and think, holy shit, I need to see more of that. I don't care. All I saw, like, all they had to do was say Tessa Thompson, Chris Hemsworth, Men in Black, I'm in. That's so terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's like that's like what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that this is the problem. Um but but and I'm not part of the solution. I mean, I will see other movies. I will see small movies. I will see um indies. I will see anything I can. I will look for the I'll look through iTunes, you know, recent discoveries tab, which is all the indies. But there's a reason why the popular releases are at the top of iTunes. This is what people want. And unfortunately, it's being exploited and it, it, it's allowing studios to cut corners by taking franchises that already exist and then just kind of replacing the actors and copy-pasting stuff for the most part. And, and I, I, look, as long as I have an opportunity to see other things that are super original and are made by people who really care deeply about the story and the people and the, and the product – um, that it provides people, which is thoughtfulness or whatever beyond just selling toys or selling tickets. As long as those still exist, I'll also be first in line for Men in Black International. Ridiculous. No, I. Uh, <laughs> There's room we, for both. That's my point. There's room for both. I can't disagree with that. However, um, we have to save our discussion for another podcast one day about only going to care about a movie because of the actors. That's a discussion for another day. I just hate this trailer because it is exactly what you said it is, which is like, um, and this is an actual studio discussion I had heard. So I'm not even like exaggerating this, but the, for the Mission Impossible franchise, the, the studio actually explained like, oh, the Mission Impossible franchise is this. And they have like a line item list of like the face mask, 
you know, uh, character changing, the this, this, and this. And that was what they used to build a movie. It was like this checklist item of what a Mission Impossible movie is. So this is, seems to me what they've done with Men in Black, but in a really bad way. So now the Men in Black trailer to me shows it's like fancy, cool sci-fi guns and then black suits and people being cool in black suits and then aliens. And it's like it's like you mish, mishmash these up into something cool and people will like it. And you are. And that's what you're just eating that up. And that's what I just can't stand with this trailer. I'm like – in both trailers, I watch both the international and the, the domestic one. It's just like – it's just like that's all they – that's all they're, they're just selling us junk. They're just selling us junk food. And of course, there's all the people out there who are like, I love junk food. But I just can't stand it anymore with something that uh, – Men in Black that I think – I've always felt this from the first movie is that it should be handled with more care because I actually think the first movie – without going too much into this, is uh, an a, a, a iconic classic in the sci-fi genre, in the sci-fi comedy genre. 100%. And it's way, it's way above a lot of other generic Hollywood sci-fi. And I can rewatch it any time and think, this is really great. But the second and third ones were really terrible. And, you know, they just kind of lost sense of what it was. And again, they're, they, they've taken that and extended that. In no way is this interesting or different than anything they've done before, and that's what bothers me. It's just like the prepackaged line item list of cool fancy guns. I'm like, that's not what Men in Black is. If you watch the original, it's more to it. And of course, Tessa Thompson, the only thing that interested me, the only thing that raised my eyebrow was Tessa Thompson being like, uh, I, I didn't understand the, the, the exact line of dialogues going back and forth, but it was like, uh, we found you. And then she's like, no, I found you. And it was like, wait, who found what? And that only made me be like, okay, well, there's something here. I, I hope it's not simply what you said, Mike, about, oh, she's Will Smith's daughter or whatever. But that there's something more with her, which was the actual point of the first Man in Black movie, was that Will Smith was, you know, n none of these people that they normally hire. He was completely different than anyone they've ever hired, and he didn't fit in. He was a quote-unquote black sheep or whatever you want to call it. And he was still able to take it on, but they've never really followed it up with these movies. And so if anything, that's what I hope we get with this. But I don't, I'm worried from what we've seen, so I don't... Well, let me use this, actually, as a transition into Vox Lux, because I do think that there's something significantly relevant here. We have had discussions in the past about Vox Lux because of my expectations on the movie from the trailers. You mean discussions uh, for listeners uh, in messages, right? Not like on the podcast. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Vox Lux had a challenge to face in how to market itself. Right? When, you're, when you walk out of the theater... It's very clear how challenging it must have been to market this film accurately to what it's about and why it exists in the first place. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and so a movie that is, for all intents and purposes, Raffi Cassidy's movie. It's, like, it's, a, it's a real opportunity for her to take the lead for the majority of a film. Despite Natalie Portman being billed as the, the star. Right, the that's star. my point, though, is marketed entirely as a Natalie Portman um, tentpole. I mean, like, it, it was marketed as watch Natalie Portman sing Sia songs. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, what yeah. it and And understandably so, right? Those yeah, are two they gotta really sell good it. markets. Um, I mean, to, they pulled in a lot of cash just because of people who wanted to see this whole Sia thing unfold. It, I don't... I don't know for a fact, but I'm fairly certain. And when you watch Natalie Portman on the late night talk shows, as I did, because anytime she's promoting a movie, I will watch every single appearance she has. Um, she always talked about Sia. And that was because the marketers said, hey, late night talk show host, bring up Sia. So, um, you know, it was never, they never really got into 
Okay, so tell me about the social commentary of this film. Tell me about how you're unfolding the construct of the connectivity between terrorism and pop star culture and all that stuff, which we'll get into shortly. So I think it was really interesting. I mean, I entered the movie, thankfully, you know, with your help, not getting too caught up in expecting it to be more mainstream in approach. But I still like was thinking, yeah, it's not going to be A Star is Born. It's not going to be cookie cutter. The message is going to be raw and deep. And I saw the activity on social media about how this is a shocking movie in many ways. So I, I knew to kind of leave my expectations loose and open, but I still expected it to be created differently than it was. All the turns they took in terms of how it was edited, how it was put together, and how the story was crafted was completely against my expectations. And it surprised the hell out of me, threw me way off balance, and I think required me to have to go back a second time to watch it again with new fresh eyes saying, okay, I, now I know how this works. Let me pay closer attention. And, you know, I will do that. I don't think I'll get to do it in theaters, but I'm going to buy the hell out of this movie and watch it again. Yeah, and that's, look, for those who are wondering, that's what you just explained is why we're having this discussion. Is that not only I did I know from the moment you were like, I'm excited for this movie, that I'm like, we got to talk about it once you see it, but that there's there's a lot to talk about, not only from thematically, but from the marketing standpoint, from from its positioning. So um, for everyone who doesn't know, obviously, this is the uh, Vox Lux is the new film from Brady Corbett, who is um, uh, an actor turned filmmaker. Brady's been in a, a bunch of indies. Um, he's, he's He was born in Arizona. So he's an American actor. Um, and he's a hardcore cinephile. I've actually met him like a few times. He stayed in my apartment one year when I was at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, and he's a really smart guy. And he's also a really like full on cinema nerd. So he's acted in a bunch of films. He's friends with a lot of filmmakers. He's friends with a lot of other actors and actresses. And he made his feature directing debut uh, a couple years ago with a film called The Childhood of a Leader, which um, I actually haven't seen yet. Although I heard a lot of good things from people who did see it, which is also a very provocative film from what I know. Um, about uh, a kid who, after World War One, grows up, you know, the childhood of a leader, basically, and what his life is like in that kind of situation. So it's another very dark, provocative character study. Vox Luck is is a similarly dark thing, but also very much inspired, I think, by Brady's intelligence in approaching the world and and looking at things in a different way and deciding to make a bold, ambitious film. I mean, so. The other thing that is, uh, Mike, you were saying all the marketing, I really have to give credit to Neon, which is the company that's distributing this, for actually being so bold as to pick it up and release it and to market it that way. Maybe they knew they were going to get negative reaction once people realized it wasn't the, the, the fancy singer movie. But at the same time, I'm kind of glad thinking about it that they actually tried to do that and throw it out there that way. And like, because that's the thing. The, the, I think the, the film works best um, if you're an open-minded moviegoer, when you go in thinking one thing or you go in you know, with some mind and it completely goes the other direction and it throws you for a loop and it presents a very upsetting and um, disruptive and, and provocative film that makes you want to talk but makes you upset. It's not the kind of film you end and you're like, oh, that was a great time at the movies. I'm so happy. And I can't – I don't, I don't want to recommend it to any of my uh, family, I would say, who know this and who are looking for that kind of film because I know they're just going to hate it. 
Um, so I'm glad you, you, you took the time to see it, Mike. And I, and, and for those listeners who are wondering, Oh, what were their messages? This is a lot of what I was telling you was like, Oh God, watch out, watch out. Cause you kept being like, Oh, I'm so excited for it. I'm like, yeah, but it's not, I knew it wasn't what you had in your mind, but I also didn't want to tell you what it was, you know, which I could have so easily done. I could have been like, well, this is what it is and you got to get ready for it. But I'm also like, you know, just. You know, as you said, when you saw it, you, your expectations were different a little bit because of what I was saying. Like, you just don't think it's this. Um, so I hope everyone who's listening from this point on has seen it because we're going to get into some full-on spoiler discussion. Um, so, Mike, I, before I want to get into it, my other context that I want to add to it is I saw this film at its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival this year. And I saw it maybe two or three days, I don't remember exactly, two or three days after seeing A Star is Born. And both of these films premiered at the festival. You know, at the time, we really, there were trailers for A Star is Born, but we hadn't really seen the movie. So this was the first time anyone had seen the movie. And then Fox Lux, we'd literally seen one teaser that had 30 seconds of footage and nothing else. And no one had any idea what it was. So I saw it back to back with this movie. And, it, and I've said this a lot in my reviews and on Twitter that Vox Lux is the anti A Star is Born in the most full-on sense of anti you can be, which is not only does it reject and, and like fight back against everything that A Star is Born is, but it's also the like unglamorous, truth-telling portrait of a pop star. Whereas, and look, I know, I know the moment I said that someone's gonna be like, well, A Star is Born is truth-telling too. There's drugs and it's, uh, but it's like, it's the, it's like, that's every pop star's story. You know, it was like, oh, they get into drugs and life's not easy and it, they drink alcohol. Oh no. Like, but really here we go on stage and here's a million fans and everything's wonderful. And oh, what? she has a beautiful voice. Look, she's the best. You know, let's give her all the awards. She's so wonderful. Okay. Stop shitting on that. It's a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so, so, I'm just trying to reference for the sake of, of Vox Lux. So, anyway, then we move into Vox Lux, and I, I, my experience at the screening, I'm sure I annoyed the people sitting in my, next to me, is that like 20 minutes in, once it starts to get going, I was just, I was into it, and I'm like, I know what you're doing, Brady. I, I, and I'll say this throughout the podcast is that I really think Brady knows what he's doing. He's not this kind of director who like tried to shoot for the moon and, and didn't know what he was doing. He knows everything about this movie. He knows what he's doing. He's he's incredibly smart. He's not only incredibly smart as a storyteller getting into the themes of it, but he's incredibly smart as a, a cinema craftsman who knows why and how to shoot things a certain way and why and how to show scenes a certain way. And I just started like cackling in the film. I was like, ha, ha, ha. Because there were moments where like something will cut and something will happen. And I'm like, oh, my God, Brady, you went there. You went there. You took it there. And I can't believe it. And this is fucking brilliant. And that's my, my take on this film is that let's get into this discussion because I said this on my letterbox review. I said that I think – or I think it was actually in my full review on the website too. I think um, Vox Lux is ahead of its time. I think it's a kind of film that not only does it take time to process and contemplate, but that everything about it rejects what is you know one of the most popular beloved movies of the year, A Star is Born, and pushes back against it in such a way that – isn't actually bad, but is very much um, an example of filmmaking that is so ahead of what we see today that it will take years for us to truly appreciate it. And uh, and so I, I wanted to have this discussion with you because even if you don't like it, I hope I can shed some light on what I see in my perspective as what the film is showing and discussing. And I hope in exchange I can gain something from what you or others have criticisms of or just what you didn't like about it. Like there's one thing I want to talk about later, which is that 
a lot of what I've heard is people will see it and say, hey, I was into it. I was going along with it. But then uh, then the third act happened. And I'm sitting here like, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean the third act? Yeah, yes, of course the third act happened. But what, what does that mean? What was your whole big issue with it? <laughs> so I want to get into that later. But um, those are my opening thoughts. So, Mike, l- let's have it. Time heals all wounds. I um, I left the theater perplexed and almost borderline frustrated. I couldn't speak. I couldn't react. I didn't know what to say or how to feel. I think the reason for that, when I look back, was because of the final 10 minutes being all music. Now, as I look back at the whole movie, and I had time to reflect and think about it, I knew when I left the theater that there were things I loved, you know, literal dialogue that I thought was perfect, connections plot-wise that I thought were great, and... I could look back at it and think, okay, well, that line was relevant to that scene. Like, there was cohesion. It wasn't a bad movie. I enjoyed the hell out of it. But I was working so hard um, and probably shouldn't have been. So I left the theater feeling like, what the fuck? Like, they had all this opportunity at the end of the movie, even while she was performing, just to have, like, nuance and things to create closure or add suspense the end of the film almost felt like it was pushing me towards expecting something bad to happen, someone getting stabbed or another shooting or something. I, it was like my brain was going a mile a minute, but what the film wanted me to do was shut my brain off and just appreciate the fact that, the, that this performer is doing exactly what she set out to do her whole career from the start and is establishing that thing that she said when she was laying in bed with that other rock star and said, I just, I, you know, the kid who shot up my school listened to the kind of music you make and was inspired by it. I don't want anybody to think like that when they listen to my music. I want them to just shut off. And then, ah! what? No, yeah, get, just finish your sentence. <laughs> and so, so I, so, you know, I, I didn't put those two together while I was watching the film and realizing that, those last 15 minutes when she was actually on stage was that in the flesh was all this drama and all this bullshit that's like years, a year, you know, like a five year biopics worth of drama that you would see in most movies about, you know, uh, music stars unfolding simply during the day that she's prepping for her big performance. And she steps on stage and it's just music, music, music. No personal drama. None of this bullshit. The sister walks out. She smiles. The daughter walks out. She's just enjoying the music. Jude Law maybe had a little bit something there, like, because they cut to him right after she said that, or the Willem Dafoe voiceover said that she sold her soul to the devil, or at least that's what she imagined in Yeah, spoiler, spoiler. Right. Well, but we're already past the spoiler alert, so... I know, but that's like the biggest reveal. But continue. sure, but I well, we can discuss whether that's a reveal or whether that's just like letting you know what she said earlier. Yeah, so, we'll get back to that. <laughs> so, so Jude Law's face is in like the red lights, and he looks angry almost. So I, I I don't know what that was about, but what I know it's the devil, brother. It, ah, see, I don't want to believe that, but. I appreciate that. Because <laughs> you don't want to believe that. <laughs> I, I know. I mean, he is the devil, though, when you think about it from just, okay, look at the characters. Natalie Portman, 
uh, steps into the limelight. Her sister um, falls in, I don't want to say she falls in love, but she sleeps with him. And as soon as she's confronted by Natalie Portman, or by, uh, we'll call her by her character's name because it's not Natalie Portman. So as soon as Celeste bursts through the door to tell her sister about 9-11, she finds him in bed with her. And you think, oh shit, this something's going to go down. But they just cut to 18 years later. It's awesome. I loved that. And um, when we catch up with them, we sort of very slowly unfurl this web of shit that happened over those 18 years. It's not. It's never spoken, which I think is so great. That's something I really am appreciating more about the film is that there's a lot of story told with just this fraction of a second thing that happens. We now know that over those 18 years, the relationship with the sister fell apart for both Jude Law and Natalie Portman's now grown-up character. Natalie Portman and Jude Law have had sexual you know, escapades while being on drugs, and they just have this unique relationship that doesn't fall victim to all the bullshit that most music biopics do. What and, do you mean? That is literally every music biopic is the manager hooking up with the superstar and yeah, fucking it ruins because they get into drugs. Yeah, yeah, no, it <laughs> that's ruins. Like, that's, that's like the cliche thing, though. But what's not cliche is that it didn't ruin her. She yeah. always finds a way to battle through all this bullshit that's supposed to happen to her, and she's still out on top. But she even says, <laughs> "You're but you're Mike. Here's the thing. You're you're buying and you're believing that this is a star is born again. You're believing that she's having the best life she can live because she's a pop star." That's what that's the Asar's Born version. This is the anti-Asar's Born version. Just because she can draw money and people and just because she can give that stage performance, does that really mean that she's living a great life? Does that really mean no, she's no, a she's not living thing? a great life. She's miserable. She's, right, but you but you just said to me that that like, oh, she's able to get through all this and keep going and keep being what she wants to her be. Her career survives. Okay, okay, that's okay. what I mean to say. Okay. Her career has survived all these things. Right. That's my point. And she right. I think one of the most enjoyable lines in the whole movie was when she says my music gets worse but it does better i like, <laughs> like that was my favorite line in the movie and uh, so i just good. i just love that 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 she sees her career that way she's just doing this to make money now like she she doesn't really even she doesn't love it but somehow when she's in it she, I, that's where i have see now the more i talk about it though i can start to f kind of like chip away at my enjoyment of the movie in hindsight because well, like i don't know that that tells the story in an authentic way to what the characters are supposed to be going through compared to what yes, the filmmakers yes, trying yes, to tell does. me to do no but you're you're i think you're confusing i think the problem is you're confusing too much because i think it's way more deeper than you want to admit and it's also that everything you just said is actually part of the brilliance like first off the fact that he allows them to so blatantly casually state these truthful lines is really remarkable number one because like you know every movie has to sugarcoat it and turn it into this lyrical thing and they're just like nah that she just doesn't just wants to do it for money anymore even so even the line you're talking about early on where she says i just want to to, to not you know have my music influence people th that's like part of the brilliance because that's actually the opposite of what happens you know and that's Everything you're talking about is actually part of his brilliance. Again, I think Brady knows exactly what he's doing. And he's not trying to entertain you. He's not he doesn't give a shit about you being entertained by her music. And if you are, if are you if all you get from this movie is like, "Oh, I like the music and I liked her performance," you're literally part of the problem. You're literally the people who are like accepting music without realizing that there's so much more bad shit in the world going on. And that's what he's trying to touch upon. 
So sorry, go back. Well, before I go, you, no, I go off, making, you go back. I mean, it's a good point. And I, I, you know, I think about the scenes in the movie where, um, you know, the guy wants to take a picture of her, and she's yeah, just this annoyed. Is a, this is a common celebrity thing I've right. seen all the time. Yeah. Of course, and she's annoyed, and she has an outburst. And then I look at the other outburst that she has, which is in the press room. And then I look at so every outburst that happens in the movie by Natalie Portman, because um, Raffi Cassidy's um, Celeste doesn't have outbursts, right? She's yeah, but they very explain calm. that there to 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 before I before I go back to what you're saying. Let me interject. There's there's a really great line. I think it's the voiceover, the Willem Dafoe voiceover, where he says at some point. Because of the conditions of her upbringing, she went to the extremes of her personality, and that she developed that way in a way that she would not have if she had had a normal life. Yeah. Well, and I these think are these are extremes of that personality. There's a there's obviously a reason why the younger Celeste is calmer and the older Celeste is angry and very easily agitated. I mean, it's just she has, it, she's that's been the eight, by life, yeah. right? That's the eighteen years of it. But I also think that the the, all the things that happen in the Natalie Portman scene seem to be driven by this immediate and new stress that is put on her about these terrorists, um, you know, repurposing the masks from 18 years prior, right? Th- this is a forgotten look. Well, in theory. In theory. I don't, in theory, I don't, I, I don't really, I I don't really fully, yeah pop culture in the movie probably is still recognizable like the scream mask or something so right, exactly so i this was one of the things that i felt frustrated about and maybe it's because i would have done it differently i mean i don't know that that's a it's there's a mindset i have when i watch films of how i would have approached that story beat it can sometimes make my perception of a film different from just the general moviegoer um and, and maybe more critical unfairly so when that happened, yeah. I, I got frustrated by the fact that he didn't allow her to explore it much. It comes out in outbursts about other things, right? So when I look back, I realize that she's on edge because of that reveal to her that that happened. Because when he comes in, when or uh, when her, when the female manager, I forget her name, character name, when she comes in yeah, and tells her, publicist, her mean, the yeah. publicist, yeah, when she comes in and tells her what happened, her reaction is is I think the most telling moment in the movie for her as a character. She kind of tries to avoid it. She doesn't want to admit that her music led to this outburst. But there's all these moments, there's stuff bubbling under the surface where she wants to get at the core of it. She wants to speak to the terrorist. She wants to say, you will not inhabit my space. You will not take over my life. Um, But she always does it. Like she just, everything, every interaction she has, she just handles it wrong. Like she's getting close to handling them right, and then she fucks them up, and that's the point, right? That's who. Yeah, that is the point. <laughs> as the character Celeste, she is very bad at human interaction, and she she is only good at creating mindless music for the masses, and she knows that, and that's why when she's on stage, she's able to live in that moment and be proud, be proud, and be a great performer. But when she's out of it. She has no bumpers in life. She has no way of controlling her emotions. And it always causes her to screw up. And I think that's what was most compelling from a performance standpoint. She's like a bipolar or manic depressive, I don't know. But there's some mental screw loose for her because 
you know, when she's walking with her daughter and she gets pissed off and then she apologizes like right after. Oh, it was so frustrating to watch. It's like, get your shit together. You're a maniac. And that's just, that was never going to happen for her. Yeah, only, but what, okay. I, I mean, I would, well, I just want to say, because you're talking about Natalie Portman's character, I think you, one thing I really want to um, solidify with this film is that I think Natalie Portman's character, Celeste, is much more smarter than we give her credit for, especially because she does all this stupid stuff that you're saying. I think actually, what I really love, and this is, again, part of the brilliance of it, is that her character does these things, and you can easily peg her as the, the dumb, you know, influence the wrong way kind of woman. But I think all these things you're touching upon are actually the character traits where she's she's breaking down and realizing that she's smarter than she is. And that the 18 years of her life that built her into this person is actually the kind of influence in a negative way that has prevented her from really being who she truly is, which is this intelligent person that we see at the beginning of the film before she's influenced by the shooting and everything that comes after it. And so to actually answer your question of, oh, well, I don't understand why she is the way she is, the film is actually that. That is the core of the film is basically explaining why she is by referencing not only is it the shooting, but is it everything else that happened. And of course, the 18 years like typical music stuff is not – I just put it together because I'm like, eh, this is not a surprise. Like you can go watch the Amy Winehouse documentary and you can understand that's what happened in 18 years. <laughs> you know, that's basically it. Like, And I think Brady's drawing from real-life influences from, from not only Amy Winehouse but Ariana Grande and her shooting in Manchester – uh, a lot of these things, like, he's actually drawing upon real-life comparisons. Um, and and basically, I think, I, look, no offense here, Mike, but I think your interpretation is the surface-level interpretation. I don't think you've even begun to scratch the surface. And this isn't you. I think this is what I keep saying about the film is that it's a film that with years of time and processing, do you realize how much depth there is to it? And the surface-level processing is, to me, the same way people process Darren Aronofsky's mother as, like, a surface-level film. And they're like, eh, everything's there and it's on the front and there's nothing more to it. You know, and even the even the other layers about religion and so on, people are like, yeah, I saw that, but it wasn't interesting. I'm like, you're not only not giving the film enough credit, but it really is a simplistic interpretation of the film. And there's so much more to it. Even if you don't like the way it was presented, the, the filmmaker's intellect is clearly on display in everything from the dialogue to the performances to everything. I, I think that you're always going to be right in all the things that you say about this film, but <laughs> only because I loved it, only because it like it reached into my soul and it and and I want to there's a there's like a thesis statement I want to make at some point, but it reached into my soul and was like Alex, this is what you think about the world, and finally Brady, who again I've met him and I know that he's an intelligent guy, finally Brady, you've taken that and and portrayed it in this really remarkable film that isn't an enjoyable film but is an is an uh an uh engaging and i i I keep saying it but provocative is the best word provocative film i wish it was a tv show no don't say that that's what i wish i think i just came to the realization that that it it tries to tackle so much it 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 has a so it has something to say about so many things and you know you can look at it from okay well there's four major points it's trying to make no it's more like 40 every single scene and sometimes every single line is like a social commentary in and of itself that could have been served by an entire episode of television if Uh. that's how this were approached now you couldn't do what this film does as a tv show you couldn't have 
you you just they, it it wouldn't have happened. You couldn't show the school shooting the way they showed it, and like you know there are these little bouts of genius that only somebody with a very refined vision what they want to do could do. Like having the 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 school shooters car bomb fail. Like I I thought that was hilarious. And I was mm-hmm. weird, weirded out by the fact that I found it hilarious. <laughs> you know, I was mm-hmm. like, am I supposed to laugh right now? Because yeah. he just he thought he was going to blow up this room, and he he didn't. And now he has to shoot these kids. Those are things you 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 would not have. Th- those wouldn't have happened, I think, in a television show. Um, not just because you know I'm I'm not talking about mainstream television. So, oh man, there's just a lot to unpack with this movie, and I think yeah. in some cases. He flies by really thoughtful and thought-provoking ideas and allows people like us to have a podcast to stretch those out. But within the film, he doesn't do that. He leaves a because lot he of doesn't interpretation need to. to the audience, which is, a very, um, which is a very respectful way to treat your audience, but also can throw – I think throw, probably throws a lot of people off and, and will prevent this film from getting the respect it ultimately does deserve. Maybe, but who cares? Because Brady is Brady, like you don't watch Kubrick stuff, and you're like, well, if only he'd shown us what everything in 2001 means, then it would have been a better film. 2001 was a pretty big failure when it opened too, as far as I recall. But um, I, I mean, if if I can take a moment, I want to explain my my thesis on Vox Lux. If you if you're if you're ready for this, <laughs> yeah. Because I, and I'm I've ready, had this man. in my mind, and I've written about it a little bit in my reviews and Letterbox, but I've never really like spoken about it in depth the way I want to, and I'm very afraid to because it's very like. I know someone out there is going to be like, I hate this. Society is a beautiful place. But what I see, Vox Lux, this is my theory about what he's trying to say and what the, the main thing about it is because it is a pop star movie nonetheless. And it is based similarly on a real life kind of thing. Ariana Grande had a shooting at her show. Not that Natalie Portman Celeste had a shooting at her show, but there is a pop star shooting connection from the real world. So what I said and what I feel is that Voxlux, and I'm, I'm borrowing some lines from what I wrote, but Voxlux is a frighteningly, brutally honest story of how everything in modern society in our world now is cyclical and connected, including pop stars and terrorists. And what I mean here is not simply that pop stars and terrorists both get the same attention and this, but as you already kind of hinted at, Mike, I'm talking about how a pop star literally inspires terrorism. And no one in the movie wants to admit that. No one in society, in real life, wants to admit that. And no one, for a lot of an honest truth, can actually figure out and contemplate in their mind how these two could be connected. And Brady makes a huge leap. He goes to the like the the terrorism scene is just a cut. Like you're in another scene, and then it just cuts to them with the mask going out on the beach. And when I first saw this, I was laughing. I was cackling because not because I I was like, oh my god, there's a terrorism incident, but because like, he, he made that connection so apparent simply in the mass. And that's all he needed to do to show it. And so what I believe the whole grand thesis of this film is in relation to her character, in relation to uh, Celeste, is that her beginning, and this is the cyclical notion of society as it is today, is that her beginning was created by exploiting the pain and suffering and tragedy that she was surrounded in to launch herself into what is essentially a selfish, greedy, narcissistic level of stardom. And that then her fame, this is the, the terrorism leap, is then exploited by the terrorists for their, you know, uh, I don't want to say selfish gain, but for their gain, for their whatever the terrorist gain may be, whatever they think the gain is by killing people. So they've literally cyclically 
exploited her fame, which was also began from pain and suffering and, and horror. And then it ends by her exploiting again the attention of this attack to deflect and pretend that she's this like wonderful, inspiring, gorgeous person that we should all just stop thinking about things and enjoy the music. And you, when you say this to me, when you're like, oh, when I was watching that and I didn't feel that, I'm like, because that's exactly how he wants you to feel. He wants you to be like, wait, I can't enjoy this music because now I see how it's all connected. And we get to finally see this real side of her, which is broken and scared and confused in these scenes where she's not on stage and she's not in front of people. And we get to understand that like, that all of it is fake and that the truth is that everything is connected, that terrorism and pop stars are actually connected. The pop stars do actually influence terrorism in modern society. And that the final concert moment where she's like, let's bring it all the way back to where it began, completes this grand circle. And of course, this also touches on a commentary on capitalism and, and um, fame and exploiting artists which is essentially Jude Law's character. And as we kind of already talked about the devil notion, this, the, the, she made a deal with the devil. Like, while we could talk about that as a question of whether it really truly is a supernatural moment of the film or whether or not it's this, like, tease that she sold out. She, she sold out to what is literally the devil, Jude Law's character, and became, in the process, someone who influences terrorism and basically further... Uh, um, reciprocates and perpetuates a horrible society where this can happen by her being a pop star who sold out to fame. And that we see all these other sides of it. We see the real person she is. We see the the self-doubt and the, and the reflection she has in these little glimpses where she realizes she's not actually enjoying the person she is. We see literally the fact that she's re-raising a child that is that – is, and I think it's brilliant that they cast, they cast Rafferty again, but basically her all over again. And that she can't – like that's how cyclical everything is in this film. And he's showing it both in very blatant, obvious ways with the casting and in extremely subtle, like you have to be smart enough to make the leap ways. And that that's what this film is really about. He's, he's basically commenting on modern society and basically being like, hey, we all want to pretend – not we all, but hey, people want to pretend that pop stars are this like good force for, for the world. And that if, all, if only – and that's why when you said that line, Mike, I was like, ah! When she's sitting there and saying to him in that room, hey, I don't want your music, you know, you make music that influence terrorists, guess what her music did too? How ironic and fucked up is that? And how much is that actually the truth about what's happening in our world today? But this is also a film that actually tries to peel back that curtain and say, like, this is the truth. And of course it's not going to sit well with people. Of course a lot of people are going to be so disgusted by the fact that it even brings this up that they're going to just like – just just reject this film entirely. And, and that's kind of the point. Like, it, it ends with that sequence at the concert at the end because it's almost trying to say to you, like, hey, can you really listen to this music still after you know all of the origin of it? And some people can, some people can't. And I love hearing those interpretations because then I, like, then I listen in to people and I'm like, ah, you're one of the people who saw it this way. Okay. And that's not a judgment. It's almost just saying, like, do you want to accept the truth of what this film is showing and saying or not? Well, I do think that I do think a message that he really also wants to send is one of of um, celebrity, right? It, it wasn't yeah, so much why. Hey, did my music inspire this? They kind of just move past that. What really kind of becomes the core of that conversation is 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 whether or not is the one that the journalist asks, right? Is a, is the question of celebrity and whether or not um, these terrorists want to be famous. And whether or not she'll comment on it, in and through doing that, making them even more famous, 
And I think that's a really big point, uh, a message that Brady really I would have liked to have seen even more about, which is this idea that we're making these terrorists, domestic and, and foreign, um, more famous by plastering their pictures on the news 24-7, by showing what they did, by talking about all the guns they bought and all this shit. Like, we're making them celebrities, and we're causing I think more, to ha- more to come in the wake because we're making them famous. And so... I think that's obvious not only in what the film shows, but I think it's obvious in the fact that she is created by a terrorist. That's the most interesting thing there, too, is that she is created by a terrorist herself. Well, and also, you know, the line that I found interesting of the voiceover was that the reason she became famous was because the manager told her to change the I to we, and the country rallied around the song because of of that. Um, Of course. Uh, so, so, so to me, that's a small bit of commentary on like how easy it is to get masses of people to buy into bullshit is to just like spoon feed it to them. And they're like, oh, of course, we all rally around it. That That's like, as you're saying, of the 40 things it's touching upon, that's one of its own. But sorry, continue. No, I just think it's it, there's so many different avenues we can go down. Right. This film wouldn't exist 20 years ago. That's what's so amazing about it. You know, it, it, it can only exist as a result of 20 years of introspection about what terrorism has done to us. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that's why I was glad that 9-11 happened in the film because, you know, it's a fictional film about real world people, but it's, you know, it, they could have easily done everything fictional um, and skipped over 9-11 because those, you know, while the first shooting is very akin to Columbine, timing and style, yeah, style. And, and, <laughs> look, yeah. Look, look of the kid. Exactly. Except for the and the new one, I, I think there's a, I think there's probably an, a sense when they made this film that people were going to enter that concert expecting another attack. I mean, I don't know. Did you? I, this is something I walk. I expected this movie to end with her being shot. I, I, I honestly thought the longer the music played, the more I was waiting for her to get shot or her sister to get shot. And, and and that was how we were going to bring it full circle. I didn't I didn't think so because I didn't think uh, my interpretation of the film the rest of the time was that that I didn't have that feeling at all. I didn't think that that was the story he was telling. I didn't think that was the connection he was making. I didn't think that was anything related to what we were seeing already. I mean, my comment on that. I think that's also what that what that beach attack represented was the full circle was that. You know, I mean, she didn't yeah. get physically assaulted, but her career is now assaulted. Her career, her her no, personal body was assaulted as a kid, but now her career is assaulted by these people repurposing her identity for terrorism, which is a I, very I think full it's actually, thing. I think it's actually deeper than that. I think it's actually her realizing, like, holy shit, I was influenced as a kid by how tragic the situation was around me. She was literally in the room and survived. And that she's kind of thrown all that out and she's forgotten about it and she's breaking down and realizing like the person that I've been made over the last 18 years is not what actually I felt at the time that happened. But then and why it, did she perform? Why did she go out there? She should have she gone out there to, if that's if she, she came to, to that realization that her music was the core cause of that. Right, but terrorist she, but attack. she's She's not there yet. I don't think. I don't think filmmakers are good enough not to give you like the the sugar coated ending. The ambiguous ending is much more stronger, and so she's not there yet. But she's having those realizations. And the 
the the ending performance is a lot of things. I think it's because it's also you were mentioned it earlier, and I wanted to bring it up. Is that the whole time the the movie's playing, I kept thinking to myself like we've, we've never actually seen her in concert. And you go, you know, you go again coming off of A Star Is Born for me like three days before. There's like 15 concerts in that movie, and you spend a lot of time watching them. So coming into Vox Lux, I'm like, okay, we're, we've never seen her in concert. And, I, and before seeing the film, I knew that there were Sia tracks. And I was like, when are we going to hear them? When are we going to see her actually perform? And uh, so when I finally got to that moment, it was a very weird moment for me too. Because I'm like, okay, well, not only are we seeing her perform, but we're seeing her perform in what is a very like muted way. Not muted volume-wise, but muted in that like nothing's happening to anyone or anything except that she's performing. Which at that point, again, having never seen her perform on a stage, is a major moment for not only all of the culmination of the character, but also for the audience watching, interpreting it. And one of my friends who I saw it with had a very big uh, influence on the fact that uh, her sister smiles at the end. Because her sister's character is a whole other thing about how she's extremely jealous of her success. Like they, Even in the early in the movie, they say it was meant to be her sister who was supposed to be famous all along, but because of the shooting, it switched, and so she ended up being the famous one, and her sister kind of tagged along her entire life with her, which is remarkable. And, that she, and obviously in the 18 years later part of the film, you see how frustrated and pissed off she is about everything and just tired of it, but that that moment where she smiles during the final concert, my friend at the time argued that this was her realizing actually um that uh celeste can do what she can't and while i was like yeah okay I, I can buy that as like a very surface level thing i'm like i don't actually think that's what's going on there and i think that's also part of everything that happens in that final concert is it's like it's it's a it, it, it's if anything it's one of my least favorite parts of the film and i'll, I'll agree with whoever wants to do that because um i don't know maybe they fixed it between venice and the release but when i saw it i could not hear the lyrics to the songs. I don't know if it was a mixing issue. Someone told me that was on purpose. I don't know if I buy that. Yeah, I probably it, was on purpose. I've listened to the album a million times. Nothing has, there's no, none of those songs have any social relevance at all. The words well, may as well just be, blah, 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 blah. I mean, they just talking about nothing. Right. Right. Except for one but I couldn't songs. even, I couldn't even hear. It was like a mixing problem. It was like something was wrong with the sound. It was like so loud. I couldn't, I couldn't. I wasn't even enjoying the concert, which I'm not trying to say I wanted to, but I'm just trying to say like I was like, what, what the hell? Like I, I thought it was like a technical issue, and I, and then that bothered me. And then what other, what other bothered me was that it just went on for like ten minutes, and she just played three songs, and I'm like, I'm like, Five what are songs. we supposed to? Yeah, I was like, what are we supposed to get from this? That was my first thought watching. I was like, well, the the lyrics in the songs have no relevance. There's, there's actually the the only interesting song is that the one that starts flashing the words on the screen behind her. And I thought it was amusing because it was like almost this like really deliberately in your face way of being like, look at everything that's connected. <laughs> you know, I was, like I was, life. I was, da, made, I was da, very da, da. surprised by the fact that he only went for literally five seconds and over and under voiceover of her performance of the song that, um, you know, she created that created her. Right. I thought that was weird. And so I think there was a reason for that. I'd love to ask someday, but I'll never get to. I just thought well, – I, I don't look, agree look, with that look. other person's assessment of the sister smiling. I, I legitimately – No, I don't either. One, I, don't I know you don't. And I legitimately 100 percent believe – and I'm conf- I'm, I'm going to believe this until I die or Brady Corbett tells me otherwise – that the reason why she smiles is simply because she says, you know what 
that's where she belongs. And look at her go. She's fucking great. Because the yeah, whole movie what, is no, But that's just, what my friend was saying, too. She's saying, like, oh, look, this is her thing, not mine. No, I just don't think it has anything to do with the music. I just think it's like they have this horrible relationship that's falling apart. Everything sucks. They, 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 they are, they're not doing well at all. And then she goes out there and she sees her as a performer and not as a sister. And she can enjoy the music. She's happy. That's it. And then once yeah, they my, go backstage, only... they're going to have another fight. It's not going to be good again. Yeah, my only extra interpretation on top of that is simply that, like, that's what they want us to feel as a pop star. They want us to forget about everything and just smile and enjoy the music when actually, like, we shouldn't do that. Um, but that, but I also thought that was, like, Brady wrapping up her storyline with the sister, like, giving her that moment. Even though I thought it was a minor thing. Like, I thought... I thought that the deal with the devil line is the much is like the loudest line in the film in terms of holy shit this is a major reveal okay, again well, whether, you, whether you believe that or then not let's let's as a closing thought closing I, like come on we, I know. we, we can talk, talk about, about this for this. 18 more hours i hope everyone's ready <laughs> get your get your headphones nicely comfortably on your head no i'm kidding <laughs> the devil line is Jude Law actually the devil? Is that the Reddit theory that's going to make this film like epic for years to come? Or was that just a, a metaphor for, oh God, I'm entering into a world where I'm going to have to sell my soul to be a star? She didn't enter. She already did sell her soul 18 but years did, ago. Had, had Jude Law contacted her prior to that to that little scene in the bedroom when she was with her sister and told her that? Jude Law was her manager all along. But when, but, I mean, all along, but she gets shot and then she's doing her recovery. She's sitting in the bed, the hospital bed, with her sister sprawled out on the bed as well. She's playing on the little keytar and somebody walks in and I forget what happens. Um, but she had just prior to the woman walking in and her sister leaving told her sister, I think I've done something terrible. And then they cut. Or something. Uh, yeah, but I don't think it has to do with Jude Law. I think. But that's what <laughs> that's he it. says in yeah, in the end of the voiceover. He says that the terrible thing that she did, that she had once told her sister, was that she sold her soul to the devil. That was uh, okay, a direct callback to that moment early in the film when she's in bed, in the hospital bed, hanging out with her sister. So I. I mean. I didn't understand what that – I mean that was a pretty shocking moment in the movie early on where she says, I think I've done something terrible, and then they just do a hard cut. So yeah, sure. I, I, I couldn't tell if Jude Law had been introduced or the, the, the voiceover had already happened where Willem Dafoe says a manager saw the performance and blah, 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 blah. She got a record deal. Well, okay, one – this is not a tangent, but one little side note I want to say before getting back to your point is that one of the reasons I really love Vox Lux is that we live in this time, this decade, I guess I'd say, where pop starism is like the greatest glory. You know, there's not only – this year alone, I think there's four other pop star movies. A couple of them haven't come out yet. There's um, – Alex Ross Perry has one called Her Smell. There's one with another young actress. There's A Star is Born. There, there's like four of them this year, and then there's Vox Lux. And then there's there's a plethora of TV shows, you know, um, uh, all the singing shows and all the famous this and that. Also, and just, Song to Song came know, out last year with Natalie Portman as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and just it's just we're, we live in this time where, like, pop starism and becoming a pop star is not only, like, 
the greatest glory, but this like great achievement of success in life and you've made it and blah, blah, blah. And I was so amazed and so, I don't want to piss people off, but relieved to finally see a movie that was like, hey, maybe pop starism is actually really bad for society. And really like not only bad mentally, but like literally terrorism and that they're feeding into each other. And and not because of the music, but because of fame and because of fortune and because of fakeness and because of society in general and all these things. I said this on our last podcast. Like I have a very um, love-hate relationship with my first opinions on movies. I know I need to see them more than once. And this is certainly going to be one of them. Like I just – I need a chance to sit with each scene and not be thrust through the the movie and – you know, an hour and 51 minutes later, it's over. And now I'm supposed to have noticed everything. I, I, I don't know how you did. You're in a movie, you're in a, a festival seeing 60 movies in like one day. And you somehow <laughs> register all these big points that Brady Corbett's trying to say. I, I, I want, I'm glad we had this conversation shed light on some things that I, I, I wanted to hear your perspective on. But I still need to think more about it. I, I need to watch the movie again. I hope that Brady Corbett's offering us some behind-the-scenes or bonus features on the home video that adds some to the context. I hope his commentary talks about this and isn't just, you know, one of those bullshit commentary tracks. Like, I'll, I'm invested in hearing more about this movie. In the end of the day, I just hope there's a really good Reddit thread that I can fall victim to because I feel like if there's any group of people that's the that's worst gonna, place to get it. I know, but if there's one group of people that can really break this movie down for me in a way that, <laughs> that will help me Redditors? the way that this hasn't, it's Reddit. Oh, God. That's okay. I, I, I just – before we wrap, I want to say two things you reminded me. One is that we tried to get Brady Corbett on the podcast for an interview, um, but unfortunately it's the holidays, so there wasn't time. But I really would have loved to have the conversation with him. I don't know if he would admit it because maybe as a filmmaker he prefers the ambiguity and the, and the, the, the sort of discussion of it. But anyway, yes. And then the last point I want to say, to, to the biggest discussion I had with people was that they complained about – um, Rafi Cassidy being cast again as her daughter, and I addressed this a little bit earlier, but I think that it's a, it's part of the brilliant idea of the cyclical notion. Like, uh, this was in Venice. I was arguing with some of my friends about, uh, you know, like if if not Rafi, what do you think they should have done? And a lot of them were like, oh, just cast someone else in that role. And I'm like, they could have. He could have. You, Brady most certainly considered that, but I think the reason he didn't, I think the reason he stuck with Rafi is that he knew how like obvious, but also intelligent and slick it would be to just have her play the daughter again and be like, look, life is repeating itself literally with the same person. I thought it was kind of cute from a filmmaking perspective that the v before you even see her, as she's running down the staircase, she says, hi, mom, or something. She says, yeah, that's yeah. my mom. So she, they, they're like, okay, before anybody gets confused, we're going to just make sure you know that's her daughter. That is her daughter. <laughs> Like you can see the movie pausing. Um, yeah. I, I I like that choice too, and I'm I'm sure they put a lot of thought into it. And I read one interview with Raffi Cassidy where she said she thought it was so cool to be able to play two completely different characters, and they really were <laughs> right. Like they were yeah. on opposite sides of the spectrum. Well, but also just that's that's in a, a mirror of Raffi. Uh, the daughter is a reflection of her mom eighteen years later. Whereas the pure innocent person that we were is only exists in the past. Well, I thought it was really a really compelling movie. 
that um, I will never recommend anybody see except for <laughs> like my closest movie loving friends. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Me too. I know if I told my mom to see it, she'd she'd leave the theater and say, "That was strange." <laughs> yeah, I know, and it's again, it's what I told you. It's not a satisfying movie. Like you're not ending it being like, "Oh, that was such a great experience." But I, but in a world, in, in this this also brings us full circle, Mike. In a world where we have Avengers and Men in Black movies, it's great and exciting to me to see something so different and so disruptive and so against the stream or against the grain of everything in cinema these days you know star, star is born and everything that it that it's exciting to me so yeah. well um i guess natalie portman's just our go-to for thought-provoking controversial movies it's a you know looking back i never thought she'd be that actress but black swan this movie uh you know even song by song or whatever it's called like she's um I, I love that she's picking movies that are not conventional. She learned something, I think, from doing Phantom Menace. Yeah, after, yeah uh, say after Star Wars, she yeah, she's like, I'm fucking done doing this. And it's not like she's doing and she might do it, but you know, she has kids, or at least a kid. She's not yeah. doing that thing that actors do when they have a kid, which is take like the Disney goofy animated role. Yeah, make movies uh, for their kids. <laughs> right. Um I won't be surprised if she does at some point, but um, you know, I mean, she's like, okay, Thor's in my rear view, Star Wars is in my rear view. Let's do movies that are really interesting and compelling. And maybe, well, I guess she did do that one rom-com, but that was a blacklist script, so give her some credit. Yeah, true. Um, but, okay, so I'm curious what Brady Corbett does next. That's a, that's a question worth asking him, um, and whether or not he's going to continue to make socially compelling movies, or whether or not this was his one piece de resistance, and, you know, this is like from here on out he either never makes another movie or he only goes mainstream i don't see that happening yeah yeah i don't think he will i think i i want him to keep making more like deep dark crazy stuff i'd like to see him make a documentary that he this mm. movie kind of felt like a documentary filmmaker's first narrative film and not just because there was a voiceover like that's not why it just it just had this vibe that you see a lot from the documentary turned narrative filmmakers and what it was but i thought that a couple times yeah yeah well um i guess that'll wrap it up for now and uh as always you can find us online i'm i'm on twitter at first showing and mike you're on twitter i'm on twitter at eisentower 30 and um yeah we'll, we'll we'll be getting into our best of the year or favorites of the year in the next episodes and and some more next year i think we really want to have a discussion about glass the m night Shyamalan movie oh, yeah. which comes out in january which is just a few weeks away so um stay tuned to our next episodes and thank you for listening thank you